Welcome to the Hope City Drip. This is a podcast of Hope City Church here in Clinton, Iowa, where we exist for the glory of Jesus and the joy of Clinton. And we know that life can be it can be a mess. Let's just be totally honest. And so whether you're a stay-at-home mom and you have littles running around or you're a shift worker and you got commutes and awkward schedules to juggle, whatever you do, this podcast is made for you to hear and to digest the mission and the vision of Hope City Church. That's why we call it a vision drip. So you let it drip at your own plate, at your own pace. So you can pause this thing, you can rewind it, you can fast forward it. Uh, Whatever you need to do, this is designed to help you live for the glory of Jesus and the joy of your local community. And my name is Nick Powell. I am a pastor here at Hope City Church. I'm the lead pastor, planting pastor, whatever you want to call it. Uh, I'm the one who's helping equip these saints to uh, do the work of the ministry and uh, get this church plant off the ground and and getting after it, uh, getting after the mission of God here in the Clinton community. And so one of the things that I want to encourage our people and encourage you wherever you're at listening to this, uh, I want to encourage you um, in wherever you find yourself as it relates to our cultural moment, uh, our cultural moment being you know, political unrest, um, but it just in general, from a Christian perspective, it's really difficult to engage with the larger cultural conversations, whether that's politics, race, um, you know, cultural issues of like sexual ethics, gender, um, public school, whatever. Like there's so many things that people smarter than me and and more articulate than me have pointed out um, that it signals a huge shift in our culture, the cultural winds are blowing in um, different direction than they have um, for a few hundred years, at least in our nation. And one of the the cultural winds, so to speak, that are blowing, something that's going in a different direction, is how our country as a government relates to um, Christian issues. So like the how the church relates to government. Um Many of you are familiar with the stories we read, um, the history books we read, uh, stories our grandparents maybe even tell, our parents even maybe tell, um, where we read about uh, an, an American people, an American nation that was very much, um, very much friendly to the idea of Christianity, very friendly to the church. And so there's a lot of mixing and melting together and fusing together uh, the ideas of building the church, building Christ's kingdom, uh, and building the American dream. So you have these things that are so closely tied together through, through most of American history, and now they seem to be separating. They're coming apart. Um, more often, and you know, I'm in my 30s, um, more often than not, I'm starting to interact with people my age and younger who are so disillusioned with the idea of American Christianity. Um, Most people I find aren't really that disillusioned with Jesus, um, whether they know him or not. They're they're not as disillusioned with the idea of Jesus and even some of the Bible story. It's it's the uniquely culturally American expression of the church that people... Uh, my age and younger are becoming, they're, they're falling out of love with, if you will, disenchantment or whatever. And one of the elements of that is that uh, we're starting to experience um, 
I mean, to put it just like kind of simply is the church is becoming uncool. Um, you, if you want to be like respected, um, if you want to be seen as on the right side of history, so to speak, well, you better not be a biblical, orthodox, historic Christian, um, because there's some funny stuff about that. Um, you know, whether you believe like the, the historic biblical Christian church's stance on, uh, the sexual ethic, uh, you know, that sex exists to be, um, you know, engaged in, in the context of marriage, um, and that marriage is to be between a man and a woman in monogamous commitment to covenant commitment to one another. I mean, those, those ideas are not popular anymore in the larger culture. Um, you know, homosexuality and like the whole LGBTQ sort of spectrum of issues, um, is incompatible. Uh, lot, lots of what that movement um, stands on as sort of like this is what we're about um, is incompatible with historic biblical teachings on sexuality, gender, things like that. And and so what that's done is it's made the church, uh, it's made it difficult on the church to reach people that, uh, you know, like it's made it difficult for them to, to communicate to people who don't know Jesus. Because, you know, for example, like I think it's Chick-fil-A. Someone could correct me if I'm wrong here. But Chick-fil-A uh, got in some hot water over the fact that they give money to FCA. Um, I've seen, I think it was football players in the NFL. There's a few football players that gave money to the Christian organization, the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, FCA. And they were labeled in some news outlets as anti-gay, uh, anti-gay organizations. Now, what that makes it sound like is that they're uh, one of the reasons of their existence is to oppose gay people, like just in general, be, be anti-gay person. And so that's, that's not true, but that's really not the point of this podcast. The point of the podcast is to just simply observe the fact that, uh, historic Christianity is, seems incompatible with what is popular now in government, what is popular in the schools, what is popular in the ideas of, in the minds of many American people. And so people who are part of historic biblical Christianity feel marginalized. They feel, as, as the Bible puts it, they feel exiled. And so call this what you will, but many people call it um, post-Christendom. So we live, in, we live in an era in the West, so Europe, North America, so that would include U.S., Canada. Um, we're living through the decline of Christian values being the norm in places of government, places of schools, places of jobs, workplace, things like that. We're moving into a, a time in history where those things are no longer the dominant shaping force in these areas. And so that's why um, cultural commentators call uh, the, you know, the time we're living in as post-Christendom, whereas it means it's we're, we're after Christendom. There's the fall of Christendom, and now we're in post-Christendom. And, and you, you can look at Europe. If you're not familiar with this, just kind of like, uh, I don't look and read about where Europe is at. Like, I think the last statistic that I saw was that 2% of all of Europe would self-identify as an evangelical Christian. Whereas the, the United States, is a, there's a huge portion of people that identify as an evangelical Christian. 
And so you have this very massive shift in culture um, of how people are relating to the church, how people are participating in the Christian church. And so uh, the church over the last, I don't know how many years, lots of years, 50 years, 30 years, has seen this coming uh, and has tried to, um, in the name of Christ, be obedient to the Great Commission, which is to make disciples of all nations. Um, the church has tried to, in being obedient to that, to go reach people to save the lost. They've tried to reach these post-Christian folks, these folks that just aren't interested in church. Um, and so one of the things that has come out of that is that the church has tried to be relevant to where the culture is at. You know, you've, I'm sure you've heard this phrase, being relevant. And there's a guy named Mark Sayers. He wrote a book called um, Disappearing Church. And in one of his chapters, he discusses this. Um, I think that one of the, I think the chapter is actually called How Relevant Can We Get? And he explores the idea of churches um, recognizing the cultural winds blowing in a different direction. Um, you know, they recognize that their church is becoming out of style. And so then they try to become more relevant to the culture that they're trying to reach. And usually this looks like, uh, you know, like a surface level style, like wearing different clothes, calling your church a different name, playing different styles of music, um, preaching with different styles, you know, whether the preacher is wearing different, like wearing a jacket and a beanie instead of a suit and tie, or whether the preacher is preaching a 15-minute story-driven homily rather than an hour-long lecture. Like, there's all sorts of different things the church is, has been doing to try to be relevant with the culture. And essentially, it goes like this. You know, let's say you're a Christian, you walk into a, a workplace where everyone around you dresses different, and you go, oh, maybe, they, maybe if I dress like them, then they'll hear me out. And so you come in the next day to work and you kind of, you know, you're wearing skinny jeans instead of your uh, boot cut jeans. And you're wearing, I don't know, V-neck instead of a button up collared shirt. And you come in there and now you're more relevant with these people. And they're like, cool, like I like your shirt, man. I like your pants, man. And you're like, cool. Do you like my Jesus then? And, and you might get people to go, oh, I, maybe I'm interested in this guy's Jesus that he talks about because he seems like a good guy. Um, he seems relevant. Well, then well then, what they'll find out is that actually, uh, if you're a biblical Christian, then you have views on gender, sexuality, um, heaven and hell, um, you know, all sorts of stuff that just seems like, or, or you know, and the Bible teaches that there's only one God and there's not many paths to God, just one through Jesus Christ. All of those types of teaching, very unpopular. It's not relevant to people. And so the question is, how relevant can we get? Even if our church feels exactly like the culture, um, the culture will feel like that's a bait and switch because they're like, oh, actually, you guys, you guys aren't even close to where we are as, you know, modern people. Like, those are old ideas. Hell doesn't exist, you know. Uh, being gay is not a sin. It's, it's to be embraced and accepted as a person's identity. All those types of things. And so, no matter how relevant a church can get, they still will be irrelevant to a culture that is post-Christian. And so, that makes the church realize that they're exiles. They feel like exiles. And so, that, what that's done and why I think that this should be on the forefront of most Christians' minds 
especially Christians who are in a church like ours, a church planting church, um, which to a certain degree should be every church, right? Um, every church should have a missional mindset of reaching the lost uh, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So how do we communicate the gospel and how do we reach the lost in a post-Christian culture that the church is increasingly becoming more irrelevant? And so how do we as exiles, you know, becoming marginalized Christians, like how do we reach this, reach this culture? And what this has done is it's put us closer to uh, much of the biblical story. We actually can sympathize more with some of the, the ways uh, like the biblical writers write to their audience. Um, for example, first century Roman society, you know, uh, which is much of the New Testament is written in the context of first century Roman society where uh, people were living under Roman rule and in Roman society, it was pluralistic, essentially saying there was, there was a bunch of different types of gods, a bunch of different types of spiritual ways. And as long as you worship the emperor and were loyal to his service, um, you could worship whatever God you wanted. You could live whatever path you wanted in that sense. So it's pluralistic. And that's the context of like first Peter, for example, that's the audience that he's writing to. And so he refers to the Christian church as exiles and sojourners. And, and you know, if you live in a place where you feel at home, that doesn't make any sense. You, you think, you think like, Oh, that that's interesting that they felt like they weren't at home and that they were exiles alienated from feeling like at home in their culture. But you know, us as Americans, like many people in America still feel like this is completely our place, our home. And so when you read the Bible, it's like, what? That doesn't make sense to me. And so it's harder to understand the truths of scripture when we don't connect with what these writers are saying. Um, but now as we feel po more post-Christian as a nation, we start to grasp with more felt um, intensity. Like we just know like, oh man, I can sympathize with those early Christians. The way they felt marginalized, the way they felt misunderstood, the way they felt exiled. I can, I can now sympathize with that because we no longer are the dominant culture in America. And one of the proofs of this that happened recently, right, is the, um, the prayer by the, I think it was a Methodist minister, and I'm not saying all Methodists are like this, but this Methodist minister, you know, he gives the prayer, I think it was in Congress, and he said, a, a man and a woman. And, <laughs> and he prayed at the beginning of the prayer to um, not just the one true God, you know, through Jesus Christ, it was like, we got to cover some bases here. We, we prayed, there's like different gods he prayed to, right? Um, and so it's basically this pluralistic prayer that's trying to cover our bases. Like, hey, let's pray to Allah. Let's make sure we get the Buddhists over here, you know, make sure they understand we're praying to their God. And, um, you know, we're not just a Christian nation. We're a, we're a nation under whatever your idea of God is. And it's even okay if you don't believe in God. Like, that's cool. Like, but we're not about that as America. And so when he says a woman, he's, he's pandering or signaling to this, to our culture that's becoming less Christian and more, um, secular to use that word. Um, 
So amen, a woman, because amen apparently is a gendered term. So he wants to, he wants to be inclusive of other people and say a woman. So anyways, that's proof. It's it's an example that we are in a more pluralistic society than um, that probably at any other time being in America. And so there's an article I read that I found to be very interesting because it essentially helps us articulate, well, well, that's all well and good that you can identify that we're no longer relevant as historic biblical Christians, but like, what do we do? How do we respond knowing that we're exiles? That's the question that I think is, is right. I think we should ask that. Like, well, then what do we do as a church? And um, this article I think is really interesting. Um, he explores He explores how we as Christians, as the Christian church, can respond as we become more marginalized. And this is a Jewish rabbi writing back in um, 2013, 2014. And, and as a Jew, he's writing from the perspective of, you know, his, his tradition and history and, and story is of the Hebrew people. And what you find in the Old Testament is a, a bunch of stories that tell of a people who have been systematically oppressed and marginalized for much of their people group's existence. The Jews, you know, they, uh, they were oppressed by Egypt, you know, they were conquered by and oppressed by Babylon. And, you know, they were sojourners and wanderers and a place without a home. And, and then, you know, like fast forward to modern history, we have the Holocaust. And so Jews in Russia and Germany, you know, like the, the Jews are very familiar with this understanding of exile. They're very familiar with being marginalized. And so he, um, through quoting a bunch of historians and stuff like that, he, he, um, he what is he he's doing here? Oh, he's saying how can, there's four ways in which marginalized people can respond to the larger culture marginalizing them. And let's see if I can find it here. Oh, here we go. He says, let's see. First, the minority culture can accommodate to secularization. And he says, this is the way of religious liberalism. So accommodating. So you, you know, you, let's use the example of you go to work again, you go to work and you're standing around the water cooler and they're like, hey, can you believe that Christians still believe that sex outside of marriage is a sin? What a ridiculous thing. Can you believe that divorce is, they would consider that wrong? And, uh, and you're like, yeah, no kidding. Isn't that ridiculous? Those idiots, they're so backwards. Uh, I don't believe that. I'm a Christian, but I don't believe that, you know? And so you're basically accommodating to the the larger culture that's going in a different direction and that's what protestant liberalism essentially has done is that um so a lot of the mainline denominations have you know licked their finger put it in the air and said hmm the winds are blowing in a different direction and so we need to go in that direction and so we need to uh, you know basically um depart from 2000 years of where the church has stood on particular issues so they're accommodating to secularization in an effort to preserve their uh, their church and to preserve their their way of life. Second, this is so. This is another response we can have: is that we could resist it. We could resist this secularization, um, like 
violent and sometimes violently resisted. So like religious extremist groups do in, in many parts of the world, uh, you know, easy to pick on jihadists, easy to pick on like Muslim extremist groups, but there, there exists in America, uh, Christian extremist groups that, you know, they are, uh, they feel marginalized. And so they're going to like go and, and they're going to, they're going to resist the secularizing people. Like, like for example, like abortion clinics, there's Christian groups that will bomb abortion clinics. And so resisting that, um, you know, secularization by force and by terror, terrorism, you know? And so that's, that's one, that's another option that people, um, take. A third option would be to withdraw into protected enclaves. So withdrawing into protected enclaves is what he says is happening in certain groups within Orthodox Judaism. Um, And he says, this is a powerful strategy that has strengthened Jewish Orthodoxy immensely, but uh, the segregation has led to a loss of influence in the world. And so you could see this uh, like with Amish groups, you know, Mennonites, uh, Amish people, or um, monks, you know, uh, monastic orders. They cloister themselves up off into uh, their own walled little gated commune community. And essentially they're saying, look, the culture is going to hell in a handbasket. It's going way too, it's, it's too far gone. We're not going to be able to change it. And so what we need to do is gather up the influence we still have and um, consolidate it together, bring it together, and just preserve it. And, and so that's, he says, is the third option that a marginalized people can do to protect their culture. The fourth possibility, he says, is to become a creative minority. So that's the phrase, that's the title of this podcast is creative minority. Um, he says it's not easy because it involves maintaining strong links with the outside world while staying true to your faith seeking not merely to keep the sacred flame burning, but also to transform the larger society of which you are a part of. And he says, this is, as Jews can testify, a demanding and risk-laden choice. So the, um, the four responses there, he, he, he basically makes this argument with the rest of his little article that... Uh, that the Jews and Christians can, should agree on the fact that we need to become creative minorities. Um, so the other options aren't really viable options. Uh, instead, the, the fourth option of becoming a creative minority is what we should do. And, and the argument is, is that that forms, you become a creative minority um, in the tension. And the tension is um, keeping hold and preserving what he called the sacred flame, or what Jude maybe would say, contend for the faith, uh, keeping the faith once for all laid down for all of the church, like preserving doctrine, preserving the word of God, um, preserving that faith center on what we believe and what the truth of scripture is, like keeping that preserved, but then also seeking to transform society. So, and, and what he's saying is, is that idea has its roots in the Hebrew scriptures and what God told the Jews to do. And, and you see it most clearly in the prophet Jeremiah's words to the, the Jewish people that were exiled in uh, Babylon. The Jews had been dominated. The Hebrew people had been dominated by 
um, the, this nation, Babylon, very powerful nation. They came in and they brought the people into exile. They, they took them away from their promised homeland and they brought them into enemy territory. And, and really that storyline, that heartbreak, um, of being prisoners of war and taken into exile into enemy land is it haunts the entire Bible. Um, very much haunts the Old Testament, but it haunts the entire Bible. And it becomes this very uh, powerful thread of heartbreak throughout the whole story of Scripture. And the reason it's important for Christians is that it gets picked up in the New Testament. But let's linger again in the Old Testament. So um, the writer of this article, which I never said the radical writer of the article, if you want to go look it up, it's called On Creative Minorities by Jonathan Sachs. So you can go look that up. But Sachs' argument is that you see in Jeremiah 29, and you go look at that on your own if you want, read Jeremiah 29. Essentially what's happening there is the people are heartbroken and they want to go home. Of course, like why wouldn't you? You know, you got, it'd be like if somebody came and take me, took me out of Iowa by force and put me in, you know, some other part of the world and said, all right, you're going to live here now. And I'm like, no, I don't want to. I want to live, I want to go home. And essentially these people are like, well, we want to go. We want to get out of here. And one of the prophets, who's called the false prophet in the story, says, ah, you guys just need to sit tight, okay? Just wait. Just be patient. Uh, we're actually going to get out of here pretty quick. It's only going to be, I don't know, a generation or so. It's just like whatever. It's just going to be It's going to be quick. And so we don't need to really really do, like we don't plant roots here. Like don't get comfortable. Don't don't do anything here where we're investing in this place. Essentially, just wait to get, God's going to take us out of here pretty quick. Well, Jeremiah comes in and says, that's a false prophecy. That's not true. That's not what God is saying. And he says, actually, you need to dig in here. Um, you're not losing your identity. You're not becoming a Babylonian. You're still um, God's chosen people. Uh, you're still Hebrew people. But the way that you are to live in this enemy nation as exiles is to seek the welfare of the place that you live, which is just mind-blowing. It's radical because it's like, that doesn't make any sense. Nobody wants to do that. Nobody wants to seek the welfare of their enemies. And so uh, he basically says that living a flourishing, abundant life, not only is it possible, but it's commanded to be pursued, to try and belong to a place in which you're seeking its flourishing. And he says, you know, he gives beautiful imagery to this. Go plant gardens, uh, build houses, have babies, and give your, you know, babies when they grow up, give them away in marriage so that they can continue um, to live this life of multiplication and flourishing. And it's, it's beautiful. And the only problem is they're still exiles. So God tells them to live this um, life of deep, abundant, flourishing and belonging in an enemy nation as exiles. So you see those two things in tension. You see the, the tension of preserve their um, way of life, their worship of the one true God. Preserve that worship. Keep the sacred flame burning no matter what. Yet, at the same time, you have to seek the welfare of the city. Seek the welfare of Babylon, the enemy nation, as your exiles. So those things exist in tension, and, and emerging out of that tension is a creative minority. And 
Uh, and so let's fast forward to now. We live in America and we feel, many in the church feel like we are misunderstood as Jesus people. We're misunderstood. Um, we don't quite fit in with, uh, we just don't quite fit in here in America. Something about Republican politics that just doesn't feel right to a lot of Christians or something about the Democratic politics that just doesn't feel right. Uh, there's The kingdom of America just doesn't feel like our home, you know? And whether that's because we've been hostily treated by uh, authorities or whether it's just because like the ideas that we have and the, and, the, and the spiritual way that we practice just seems incompatible with the larger culture. And what I want to say to you and encourage you is, is that you're right where um, the biblical audience is. You're right in the story of God. Like you are, you are in it, man. Like you're in the story of scripture you got front row seats of this thing. And, the, and I think the church can really take this opportunity to come alive. The church can really take this opportunity to get creative. Um, and so when we see uh, 1 Peter, so I'm just going to jump to 1 Peter quick because this is a New Testament um, section of Scripture. So the Old Testament, for maybe some of you listening, uh, the Old Testament seems like, well, that's Old Testament. That's for Jews and it doesn't apply to me. Well, let's go to the New Testament then. Because the New Testament is written to, uh, or a lot of the letters here in the New Testament are written to non-Jewish people. They're written to people that have come to faith in Christ and are following Jesus, have been saved from their sins, and are living this born-again new life, and yet they don't know the story of, you know, they're not familiar with the Hebrew story. They're not super familiar with Babylon and, and Egypt and um, the Exodus and all those types of things that a Jew would just take for granted as being a part of their their story and their way of life. So Peter, in the letter, um, in his letter, First Peter, he he essentially does something really fascinating, which I think we should all be super concerned with, is that he brings in the identity that God gave the people in the days of Abraham, the days of the old just the lack of a better word, the Old Testament. And he confers that identity onto these non-Jewish Christians, which is crazy because there's deep implications of this. One of the things he says in his letter, he calls them elect exiles. And elsewhere, he talks about, you know, I urge you as sojourners. This is verse 11 in chapter two. He says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles and so he's calling them a familiar term to the Jews because Abraham, the father of their faith, right? Abraham was called, and he was in exile. Abraham is this character in uh, Genesis. It's, he, he really is like the mark of the beginning of God shaping his, his people. He's called by God to leave his homeland and to go um, elsewhere, and God's promise is, hey, I know you don't know how this is all going to work out. I'm inviting you on a journey where I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to multiply your, um, your family. You're going to have lots of babies, and they're going to have lots of babies, and they're going to have lots of babies, and I'm going to actually make you into a new race and a new people group where I am at the center of it all. And as you go and walk in obedience and in faith, and as I bless you, 
I'm blessing you so that I can bless the rest of the nations, the rest of the people group. And so deeply embedded in the Jewish imagination is this idea of God shaping them into the type of people that change the world. That through living in, um, in the presence of God, they become a loving community and that they love the world. They change the world and transform it for the better. And Peter puts that identity and that vocation onto the Christian church and says, look, I know you're not at home here. I know that this place is not your home, but you are called to become a distinct people group. So before you're an American, before you're Chinese, before you're uh, Korean or Mexican, like you are a part of the covenant family of God and that you are called to go and to change the world. And that's crazy. It's crazy because it, it blows our categories up. You know, I think, I think of myself and my own story, like growing up in the church, like nobody did me a disservice in the church. I had a great pastor, I had a great family. Um, but just there's all sorts of uh, things in our American culture that if we're, they're just things that we just consume, you know, like, like, for example, like individualism. In America, we prize rugged, I'll do it by myself, uh, I don't need nobody kind of mentality, you know, especially in the Midwest, strong American farmers, I don't need nobody, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to fix it myself, I'm going to make something of myself, I'm going to do this myself, and what that does is it shapes Christians' imagination to thinking about, uh, you know, being a Christian as a solitary experience. And so the idea about being part of God's covenant family, kind of like the Hebrew identity, doesn't make any sense. And so when we think about changing the world, we totally think about it just in our own. Uh, like, how can, how can I go live the life I want to live and affect change in the world? Well, like, that's to be done through the church. But then you also, it, that individualism, it, it doesn't, it, it hurts you when you get to a moment like we are in 2021. You're in 2021 and, and for many people in this nation, we feel like we're about ready to tap out. It's like, man, I don't know. I'm just done with this crud. I'm not going to watch the news anymore. I'm not going to go to church anymore. I'm not going to go to you know, school PTA meetings anymore. I just don't want to go to anything because it just makes me anxious and it's emotionally difficult and all this kind of stuff. And, and, and what, what the church should understand is that we are our own culture. We are our own distinct people group, that we have God in our midst and that we have a way that is a better way the way of Jesus. That is the way of life. And we follow that way before we follow the American way. And so where the way of Jesus challenges the American way, we, we choose the way of Jesus. But we don't just leave it there. We don't just say, well, I'm part of the church and I don't care about America. No, no, no. We then say, how can we make America a better place? How can we make Iowa a better place? How can we make Clinton a better place? So this is where it gets really practical for me as a church planter. I want Hope City Church to be a creative minority. I want us to be shaped by God's spirit to be a presence in this community that seeks the welfare of Clinton. 
Clinton is a place that, you know, you, you don't have to look far and you know that is a place of great need. It's a place that there's a lot of old buildings and there's a lot of sad stories. And so for the church to live into its identity, to really seek, actively seek the flourishing of Clinton, I mean, if, if the church lived into that, whoo, we would change some stuff. There would be some, there would be some things. This place here would come alive. And the hope of the Bible, the hope of the story of the Bible is that um, declining nations and dead things don't say, stay dead. They revive. They come to life. And that's the story of the resurrection is that dead bones can live. That by God's spirit and his power, that dead things can, um, can come back alive and that life can bloom out of the ashes. And it is the church. It is through the church. It is actually primarily through the church that God wants to do that. God wants to renew the city of Clinton. God wants to renew this nation. God wants to renew the world through the church. So that blows the lid off our understanding of mission. Mission for sure is going up to individual people at the workplace or in your family or at the coffee shop and 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 sharing the love of Jesus with them and and urging them to repent of their sins and to follow and trust in God. Preaching the gospel to individuals is, is, is absolutely what the mission of the church and of Christians is. But that's not it. That has to be carried out in the context of the larger mission of the church, which is to go and be an agent of change and renewal in the city. So my prayer for Hope City Church is that we would live into that. That would be my prayer for the church as a whole in this community. And it is certainly my prayer for Hope City Church is that we would be a community that is blessed by God, that enjoys the presence of God, and that we go out into the Clinton community and we seek its welfare, and that we pray for it on its behalf, and that we long and yearn for the gospel to be good news to the people of this city. And so that, that I believe, if we seek that earnestly, there is a lot of life to be found and a lot of flourishing to be found. So hopefully, hopefully, this conversation that I, that I kind of just walked through with you, um, hopefully it stirred something in you. Um, hopefully it stirred, maybe, maybe enhanced, widened your imagination a little bit about what it could be like to participate in the church. It's not just showing up on Sundays and listening to a sermon and, you know, having an awkward conversation with somebody you don't really want to be with just so that you can disciple them or whatever. Like, because whatever your understanding of church is, like, God, I assure you, wants to, wants to expand that. Um, and, and that, I think, is an exciting opportunity. So wherever you're at in life, whether you're a member at Hope City Church, we're doing life together, um, or whether you're not, whether you live in Clinton or whether you live elsewhere, uh, I hope that this podcast has served to stir your affections to Jesus and that you um, are motivated to go live life um, on mission and to see your life as a vocation, to live for the glory of Jesus and the joy of wherever God has you.